she wants in. Cut it up. Um, Are we doubting? Yeah. Yeah, and I sent her. If you guys will excuse me for, because I'm just, I'm. A, hold on. Let me see if I can. Just FYI. Um, if you can answer back, Fred, tell her we're trying. Fred, can you just send her the link that you guys have since you're in communication with her? Well, everybody is. It was an email to everybody in the group. Yeah, I know. I, that's why so I'm puzzled. Somebody answer her and tell her we're trying. Okay. I can do that. Send her I, the, the I ad. I just go to the website now and just log in that way all the time. Just send it to the address site to her. I'm glad she, I mean, I, this is strange. I, I can't, I mean, I just am in the dark about this stuff, but that she can get Bob, to Bob, do you have to allow her in? Do you have to click to let her in? Yeah. Everybody that everybody that shows up in the lobby, I've already let in. Bob, her request is specifically, could someone let me in the meeting? So it sounds like she's waiting in the... Uh, it, she's just not showing here. We'll go into the lobby. I can't. I don't know how to do that. I heard log off and then log in again. I did that, Bob. I waited 10 minutes for you and didn't get anything. It said someone would come. So I just shut it down, came back on again, and you caught me in about two minutes. Ask her to do that, Fred. I don't know. Why don't I give you her phone number and you can tell her? <laughs> Because I don't really, I don't, I go into the website now, so I don't even have. Tell, okay, give her the phone number, but tell her to try that too. Just go into the, go to Literature's Prophecy on the web, because it'll have an invite button there. But go ahead and ask her to call. I was going to give you her phone number. So write it down. <laughs> Here, can you get it done? Yes, but write it down. Fred, you're not helping right now. <laughs> I'm doing my best. I'm shaking the bushes, boss. What's the number? What's the number? What's the number? She told me not to. What? What's the number? Her phone number. I don't know if I should say it over. I guess she said it to everybody. Yes, right? she did. Okay, A17 504. What 04? 0, 4, 3, 2, 9, 8. Okay, let's get started. Let's get started. What am I supposed to tell her? I don't know. Just talk her through it and see. Tell her to go online. I don't know how to do that. No, just tell, if you, tell her to go online and click on the button. And you just, Everybody got it. Or tell her to log off and just enter the meeting again the normal way. We're trying to figure out how to get you in. You're not showing up in the... Tell her to log off. Go to Literature's oh. Prophecy on the web. Rob says log off. Go to Literature's Prophecy on the web. So it's just literature'sprophecy.com. Let's start. Okay, um, Gita, your, your audio image still shows here as a cross through it. But there should be a listen now. If you find the image of the microphone just click on it but um what she has to do is move her mouse and it'll pop up
well let's let's start um, let's start let's let's start we got a lot to do let's start In the name of the Father Son Holy Spirit um, Robert. yeah she tried going in Fred you went in and did you didn't have to do anything you just uh, well, you can go in and it will it will ask you uh, I sent her a link because she if you want to bring up Microsoft and office and it will she you know I guess the question is does she have office on her computer? Does she have teams? The teams. But yeah. It shouldn't even just... Hey, it's it's me. Did you log off and go back onto the web? Yes. If you go on the web, if you type in literature's prophecy, it should take you to our website. Right. Right. Boy. Listen, um, listen. Do do me a favor, because I, 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 it's what's happening is beyond me. I can't help. Um, I'm going to ask Suzanne if she'll try to get a hold of Michael, the guy who set this up, because he, technically he he might be able to offer. I I don't know what else to do because that should let you into the into the meeting. So I'm puzzled. I honestly I don't know what to say. She said it. You, I sent you the link, and, and you tried you. Clicked on that, right? No, 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 no. Don't be. Do not be. Do not be. Listen, let me... Um, I'm going to ask... Um, give me... I'm going to... Um, I don't have number. Here. Um, can you write it? Um, give us your number again, because I'm going to ask Suzanne if she'll call Mike. Just... Um, what's your number again? 817 504 Three two nine eight. Um, yeah, I wish I could. I mean, I just I wish I knew more about this, but she I don't. She said when she went through the website, Robert, that she got a message that said someone should let you in soon. Yeah, I know, Doc, but it's just it's not showing up. You can see it. Um, here, just hold on. I mean, just keep just hang tight and see. We've got your number. I'm gonna get a hold of Mike and I'm going to click out of our program right now and see if my clicking out doesn't help. So just be patient so we can all do this together. Okay, bye. Bye. You guys, I'm going to click out for a minute and come back in. Just see if, I, I have no idea, but let's find out. So everybody hold tight for a second. Oh God. What to do? Um, how could you call Mike? Um, 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 
copy. Paste. Send. Send. And what? What else am I doing? Mm. No. Let's see, what am I doing? Um, so, the alternative lead. And that alternative lead so let people in. There he is. Yeah, there he's back. Your microphone is off, Bob. Thanks, <laughs> thanks. Um, yeah, I don't there. see anybody in the waiting room. I don't. I just don't know what to. I don't know what to say. Listen, well, let's start. Um, the only thing that that I don't know, and I, I guess we find out from everyone else, but. In order for me to, to, to get in, I have to have Teams on my computer, the app on my computer. Yeah, yeah I, I do too. I think that's true. I, I don't know. Let, let's start. My, yeah, yeah, Suzanne's talking with Michael right now, and hopefully he can do something. But let, let's start. Um, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you, Lord, for... Um, the gift of yourself in the Mass this morning, um, for your presence through the day, um, for this Christmas time. Um, there are 12 days to Christmas. Christmas doesn't end on the day we're still in Christmas. Um, sometimes it's easy to forget that because we're in a world that um, doesn't look past... Um, you know, commercial surfaces. Um, pardon all of us for that. We're glad to be together. Um, it's, a, um, it's a genuine joy for Suzanne and I to be here again um, with all of you guys, for all of us to be together. Christmas is a hard time. It, um, it carries with it such expectations. It's in the darkest time of the year. Um, that's the wisdom of our church. You come to us um, in the cold of winter and offer yourself and ask us um, to join with you in a rebirth in ourselves, to be renewed, to be reborn each Christmas. Um, help us to give ourselves to that so that each Christmas season um, we, we enter into the mystery of your life, um, giving ourselves um, to all you ask. Um, I ask a blessing particularly on all that we do tonight. Um, there's a lot going on here. Um, um, I offer special thanksgiving for our son Thomas. Um, what a great, great thing he just did. Um, 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 and for your blessings for all of us, um, I'd like to ask a special grace for everybody in the class who's carrying burdens um, right now, unspoken. Um, 
Um, help us always, that's what you ask of us, to always and everywhere be thankful. Those are the words of the Mass, that no matter what's going on in our life, however hard the difficulties are, um, we trust in you if we will just give our wills. That means for all of us um, a willingness to risk ourselves, genuinely risk, with a hope. We live in a, um, a rationalized world. We want to have reasons for everything, and we too often limit what we do with reasons. Give us the courage to go past our reasons when we don't have a reason for doing something, using all the good sense that we have, and still trust in you. That's the great gift of our faith, our church. And I ask this for all of us in all that we do this year. Um, and we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Michael, I see you. Hi. Sorry, I didn't want to stop because we're in the middle of prayers, but it's good to see you. In case all of you guys don't know, the guy in the center of at least my screen is Michael Grosso. He's the troublemaker of all of this. I mean, he, he's, he's the one who's to blame for whatever problems we have. So, Michael, this is um, part of the group. Uh, we're missing a lot here, but this is these are the pillars, most of the pillars. But one of the women is trying to get on you know, and I don't know it. Is there anything you can do to help her? Um, it looked like I had no issues joining whatsoever from the button on the website. So... Um, without seeing what she is um, seeing on her screen, it's going to be hard for me to troubleshoot it. I can I, can I ask you to do this, Mike? And I, and I just, sure. if it doesn't, if, it, if you can't help, I'll just call Julian. We will cancel for now. I, I, I know this means a lot to her, and I'd like to try to help as much as I can. Her number is 817. Hold on. Could you just tell Suzanne to text it to me? Sure. Thank you. Um, call her. If everybody just could leave, if everybody could please just leave it to Mike. Mike, if you could call her. I don't, because, I mean, everybody's got something different, and you, you know better than all of us. If you could call her, and you may not be able to do anything, I don't know, but at, at least you have a better shot than the rest of us, so. Yeah. Suzanne's, Suzanne's texting. You should get it in a second. I'm going to close okay. off because I, I really want to get us going here, okay? Okay. See you soon. Okay. Bye. Thank you again. Mike, thanks again a lot. Oh, there she is. What? Her name just popped up. Yep. I just did. Mm -hmm. um, Julie, I saw your name and hit the button. Um, Julie, are you, I see your, hit the microphone and the video camera on the, on your screen. Okay. Julie, I see your, good, good, good. Can you see me? Yeah, well, no, but you, there's a, there's a microphone, there's images of a microphone and a camera. If you click those. It should bring you up as if there you are, there you are. All I can say is you are you are a big pain in the rear, but welcome. Tell Mike, Julie, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad to to see you and Gita on the same screen is almost too much for me. Is Gita here 
Richard? Yeah, look, there she is. Just. I can't, I'm afraid to touch a button. I'm afraid I'll make it up. <laughs> all, all, a lot of us are. Okay. Anyway, you all know Julie from last year when we got, it seems like years ago when we were at St. Francis in that classroom together, but she used to sit next to Gita and I used to say to her, be careful of the friends you hang out with, but she didn't pay any attention, obviously. Um, let's start, you guys. Um, Julie, I'm so glad you're here, and um, Gita, I'm glad. It's good to see both of you. Um, let's start. We've got... We've got a lot to do. Um, before we start with our work, I just, for those of you um, in the St. Francis class, I sent you a list of the reading that I thought could finish our work together. You know, we've been talking about this forever, so you should have a list. Um, I'll send it out again because I know that there are um, computer problems sometimes, but next week we will do the... Uh, Libation Bearers, and the following week we will do the Humanities. So we're going to spend one evening on each play. When we finish Aeschylus, we will um, do Sophocles, Oedipus Rex, one evening, and Sophocles at Colonus. It's a play that few people read, and it's sad because it completes Sophocles' trilogy, too. Um, if you read Oedipus Rex, and you don't go on to Oedipus at Colonus, you actually, it, it's just stunning. Oedipus Colonus is a mystical play. It's sacramental. It's about holiness. And everybody reads Oedipus Rex, this guy who um, kills his father and has sex with his mom. It's the basis of Freud in our world. But they never go on to read Oedipus at Colonus, and it completes the cycle, and it shows a holiness that a man comes to through the suffering that he goes through. So um, it's a stunning play. I'm looking forward to doing it with you guys. We will do the two Sophocles plays, then we will do Shakespeare's King Lear and Pericles, and then we'll do O'Connor's Wise Blood and Tolkien, and I thought we would finish up with Chesterton's Orthodoxy, and then do the Gospel of Mark and the Book of Revelation, that takes us to the end of the Bible, and that will be it. I'm assuming that like you about three years worth. <laughs> <laughs> I said I was optimistic. I said two. <laughs> there's always got to be somebody in the. There's always got to be somebody in the class. <laughs> um, and if anybody who thinks that's too much, let me know. <laughs> Because I'm, I'm assuming most of you will be glad to get rid of me. Carl's hand is already up. Oh, God. Oh, okay. That's our reading list. So, And I, I've shortened it as much as I can. Um, but I just think that would... I'm so glad to be going back to Eastless, honestly. I didn't intend to do this when we set out. But now that we're doing it, I'm sorry that I didn't do it earlier. But I'm... I, what I'm really glad for is that we're going back to the ancient world very directly to Aeschylus and Sophocles and then we're jumping into the modern world right away so that we're going to see a connection between ancient times and modern times that most people don't make and I'm, I'm glad for that condensation that you know short need of time anyway that's our work okay okay let's let's start um, we did this last year at this time.
time. I'm going to do it again because it, to me it's so appropriate. We just um, celebrated the Day of Epiphany. It's the day when the Magi set off um, to find Christ. It's going to, I know this is going to sound strange. Um, it's going to bear directly on our play. I, I don't want to, let's see if you think I'm mad um, when we get there and the connections I'm trying to draw, but let's wait on it. But but it's appropriate for the season, so I wanted to um, do it as our lyric tonight. So you remember it. I'm reading it again. It's T.S. Eliot's The Journey of the Magi. I'm, I'm going to just make this comment and then let it rest with you, so I'm not going to comment it afterwards. It's Eliot's taking um, an ancient event, The Journey of the Magi, the Epiphany. So it's important to remember that it's a, an epiphany. We... It, it's a moment when something divine shows through our world and brings us into contact with something divine. Except in this case, something's happening that's never happened before. Those of you who've been you know, with me through the uh, Auden poem, the impossible is happening. The impossible is happening. A god has entered time. An immortal has taken on a mortal shape. And he will die. A god who was immortal, invulnerable, um, submits himself to a cross and will be um, killed. We will be complicit in that sin. It's our sin. He came for us. So he's given us a reason to not despair. Um, to not ever let our sins become greater than his love. That's the gift he gave the world. So Christmas Day is a celebration of that moment when God enters time, the Incarnation. And so it signifies a paradox. The, an, an, a divine life is entering the world, but it's directly related to death. When he enters the world, nobody, nobody makes a place for him. The creator of the world, this is so crucial, the creator of the world was rejected by the inn. That inn wouldn't have been there without its creator. They turn him away. Everybody turns him away and he ends up in a cave in a manger. And shortly after that, you know he will be um, persecuted. Herod will send after him. They'll have to flee to Egypt. I mean, all the awful things that he will have to suffer and ultimately his death. So it's the combination of those two things, of bringing life and death together, that um, are behind the Incarnation, this moment that we're celebrating. And Eliot's aware of that, so in The Journey of the Magi, what he's doing is taking an ancient event, but he's layering it. He's showing us that that, that ancient event is still occurring in our life now. So as I read through the poem, just remember that it happened thousands of years ago, but it's being presented if it's still occurring now that we go through that journey ourselves. And when it's over, like the Magi, we go back by another way. Because remember, that's how they left. Whatever happened in that encounter, they couldn't go back the same way. Something happened in experiencing this strange paradox where an immortal life is related to death.
because that's at the center of our faith as Christians, okay? So here's um, T.S. Eliot's The Journey to Magi. Um, <clears throat> you know you all have it online. If you go into the, if you go into our site, the Literature's Prophecy site, and go to the, go to Francis, you'll, you'll see the poetry packet, and it's one of the poems, and it's also included in the, in the, the poetry packet that I've got, the selection of poems, so if you bring it up, you can look at it yourself, but, <clears throat> but it's good sometimes just to hear it, not, not look at the words. T.S. Eliot's The Journey of the Magi. A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for a journey. And such a long journey, the ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter. And the camels galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times when we regretted the summer palaces and slopes, the terraces and the silken girls bringing sherbet. Then the camel men cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women and the night fires going out and the lack of shelters and the cities dirty and the towns unfriendly and the villages dirty and changing, charging high prices. We had a hard time of it. At the end we preferred to travel all night sleeping in snatches with the voices singing in our ears saying, but this was all folly. Then at dawn we came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation. With a running stream and a water mill beating the darkness, and three trees on the low sky, and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. Then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, six hands at an open door dicing, for pieces of silver and feet kicking the empty wineskins. But there was no information and so we continued and arriving at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place. It was, you may say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago, I remember, and I would do it again, but set down, set this down. This. We were led all that way for birth or death. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We have evidence, and no doubt. I had seen births and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation, with an alien people clutching their gods, I should be glad of another death. Okay, let's... Oh, God, did I... Okay. Um, a couple of... A couple of questions and then I want to um, I want to come at the play with a, some background things I know we got through most of it again but it's been a long time so I want to go back and see if we can't be a little bit more thorough before we go on to the next play I've got two questions before we begin because they're going to seem absurd 
Um, when we set out to do this together, we set out to see if we could find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him. That's the purpose of the class. You all know that. So here's my question. <clears throat> We've got a play going back um, to ancient times in Greece. Um, Aeschylus does not know Christ at all, or seems not to. It's before Christ came. There's nothing explicitly about an incarnation, an incarnated God. So here's my question. Where's Christ in this play? Or, and, and by the way, I'm, I'm trusting everybody knows by now. We re- it's, it's, it's sort of amazing. I, <laughs> it's sort of amazing. We read each one of these plays as a play sufficient to itself. That's where they were, the way they were presented. Plays were presented annually at the Greek festivals, the tragedies and comedies. They took place at different times of the year, during winter and spring, to commemorate death and rebirth, tragedy and comedy. And the play was presented one year. The next play, Libation Bears, and the following year, um, Humanities. But each play was read on its own terms, as if it were sufficient in itself. And yet we know, or should know, or we'll find out, I guess if you guys haven't read all of them, that you can't make sense of them at all until you put it all together. So even though each play seems sufficient in itself as a beginning, a, a middle, and an end, and we could leave it that way, none of them will make sense without seeing each one of them in light of the whole. So in one sense, part of the meaning of the play is a blindness. We're seen in parts. And Aeschylus knows that. He's got to write a play to be complete in itself so that people will come away feeling as if they've experienced something complete in itself. And yet, he, he's aware that there's something more that we don't see. So one of the themes of the play is this partial sightedness you know, seeing incompletely where our sight isn't sufficient to see the deeper meanings of things. Um, I don't want to press this too hard, but but I want to keep this question alive because it's a really important one for me when I read this play. Where is Christ, number one? And two, where is the New Jerusalem, the, the city that Um, we have an image of in the book of Revelation, which is one of the last images we have in the Bible. We're not Protestants. The the direction of our life isn't from our own private wills. We believe that there's something communal in our nature, that we belong together, that we're related together by some mystery. And that we're called into communion, community, into this holy city, the New Jerusalem. So where is this city? What is Aeschylus' understanding of the city and its importance for man? An action is taking place in Argos. It's a city. But when we read this play, we come out of it aware that there's something wrong with the city. There's a darkness hanging over it. All of the, the young men went off to war. They've been away at war for 10 years, and there's a shadow over the city. Everybody feels that there's something wrong. It's not just that the men are away. It's like some intrigue is taking place in the city. So there's a shadow, a darkness that hangs over the city. So the two questions I want to just keep alive that I'd ask you to hold on to as we go through the play are, 
Where's Christ? Are there intimations of him? Is he somehow present? And this city, what are we to make of the city? Because all three plays are moving away from Argos. There's something wrong with this city towards this new city that's going to come into being in the very last play. And it's going to be unlike any other city in the world. Okay? So those are just two background perspectives I'd like everybody to hold on to um, as we move forward. And now I want to, what I want to do is um, I'd just like to offer some background thoughts in addition to what I just said and to hold on to as we as we think about the play, okay? So I'm going to just do some um, brief readings um, and then we'll, we'll look at the play, okay? One of them's from Genesis, you all know it. This is from Genesis when God had created Adam and Eve and they fell, okay? And the reason I'm doing this is because um, the way Aeschylus presents the Agamemnon, there is such a stark difference between Agamemnon and um, Clytemnestra, and I think between the men and the women. And that difference is going to carry through all the place. So I, I just want to keep that question very much on everybody's mind, okay? And go back to roots. So the Genesis, the, the beginnings of our sin, are here, according to our faith. So this is Genesis, the um, first chapter, um, First book, sorry, in chapter 3. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig trees, fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. You know that God's going to seek them out, and they're going to be covered, and he's going to ask them what they happen, and then <laughs> Adam's going to say, Eve made me do it. And, um, and then there's going to be that prophecy about what Satan will do, that he will strike at the woman's foot, and um, that her offspring will strike at his head. And I'm presuming that's Christ. Um, so he turns to the two of them. Um, I will multiply your pain, um, yet your desire shall be for your husband. This is to Eve, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. You will um, have to work 
Um, in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, until you die. For out of you you were taken, for out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We all know this. So there's a big difference between Adam and Eve. Eve was tricked by Satan. Adam wasn't. Um, there was no devil treating him. He took um, the food directly from Eve. Both of them disobeyed. So there's a serious disobedience in, in the part of both of them. But Eve was tricked. Adam wasn't. So there's a um, a fundamental difference between the way they stand to God in their acts of disobedience, what they do. And I'll just leave that there too. In the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation in um, chapter 21, it says this, and it's, it's, for me, it's one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. It's one of the most stunning images of the city that I know of in literature, from the Iliad to Faulkner or Joyce or whatever modern you want to know, whatever you can call to mind. So one of those stunning image of the city. We were, we started in the garden. That was our beginnings. We fell, man and woman, and we carry the effects of our fall, our disobedience within us. The, the love that we turn towards God is now turned towards ourselves and I'm suggesting right now that the way in which those disorders, those disobedient, I'm going to call it defiance. Let me just name it. That there is an inherent defiance in man or an element of defiance in man from his first disobedience, that he defied God, he disobeyed him. But it takes a different form in men and women. We began in the garden, our end is the city. Not to return to the garden, to return to the city in which all those who were gathered by God will be together again. So the movement is from a garden to a city. So the city is one of the major, and you know that from our readings, the city is one of the major paradigms of our readings, okay? This is the image of the city in the last book of the Bible, the very last. The Bible's going to end with this city, and um, I'll come to the words that will end it in just a minute. But here in chapter 1 it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So the sea, the image of the Odyssey, Shakespeare's Tempest, um, Moby Dick. Hmm? Moby Dick? I mean, you can go on and on, right? That the image of the sea and its importance for the literature that we've read. The first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Okay. And you know, I mean, if, if you know the book of Revelation, you know that it ends with this image of the city that I've just read, described as a bride, that this new city 
he, he has a vision of a city coming down. The old things will pass away. And something will be introduced to the world that will be unlike anything before. The book of Revelation ends with this note between the bride or the groom calling his bride. It ends, the very last words. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who is thirsty come. Let him who desires take the water of life within, um, without price. I go down... He who testifies these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So there's this image of the city that closes the Bible with the groom calling, Come, come. Okay. Now the great theme of Aeschylus is this, um, this city um, which was emptied of its authorities when the men left for war, and Clytemnestra um, plotting these treacheries. Okay, um, but the whole action isn't completed until the third play, and in that it's in that third play that this new city comes into being, and it does something extraordinary because what it does is take the those two extremes that we're that we experience in the Agamemnon between evil and good or light and darkness and in the uh, in the libation bear it's between the it's the Furies, the Dark Furies and Apollo that it's um, that that city is going to reconcile those dark forces and bring something into being that reconciles both of them, that answers them. So this is about a really extraordinary thing what's happening in this play, okay? Um, now, to add to that, the biblical readings, um, I might like everybody to just hold on to these, too. We know that from our readings that the Greeks and Romans took the gods very seriously. That there was nothing in the world, in nature, that didn't contain the gods. The gods were in trees, they were in the sea, they were in the mountains, they were in the heaven, they were in the underworld. There were three levels to that world. The heavens, the earth, the underworld. That's going to line up with Dante's exact same three in some ways. There are these three orders. Um, but the gods were everywhere. You couldn't look at anything in nature and not find the gods. Um, and we know from the ancient myths that the gods very often favored certain men and women. And certain humans loved the gods with um, intense passions. And um, that happens in this play. We get a story of Cassandra um, loving Apollo and Apollo um, falling in love with her and actually wanting to unite with her. And something like that was going to take place until it stopped. But, but remember that there was nothing in the Greek world that didn't involve the gods and that sometimes revelations um, took place that have parallels, correspondences to things in the Bible. So, God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. It was an image of his faith. It was supposed to be a test of his faith. And we know that in the ancient world, the, um, the Greeks believed that gods asked sacrifices of humans. Those things happened. What they mean, I, right now I don't even want to go there. I, to, to, to me, it's... it's it's 
present in the play, but I want to try to get to the play. But we know those things happened. Um, Achilles um, was highborn. His birth can be traced back to the gods. Odysseus, Aeneas, um, um, all of those men and others trace their origins back to some union between the gods and men. So the Greeks were aware that some men had a greater share of divinity in some sense. They were gifted in some way. And usually those gifts carried burdens. Um, we also know that prophecies were very much a part of the, that Greek world and the Roman world. Constantly. There, there are prophetic moments in the Iliad, bird signs that um, have to be read. The Odyssey is full of prophecies. Um, Odysseus has got a prophecy. He's got to go to the underworld and meet Tiresias. And the night before the battle, if you remember, that omen comes to him with a woman crying out, cursing the suitors. And then Odysseus gets a sign back confirming it. Remember, that's, this is absolutely crucial to what's going on in, in Aeschylus. A prophecy is given, and it has to be confirmed. What we call the taking of the auspices. The Catholic Church still practices that. Omens are given all the time, and the Church has to check them out. Because sometimes people claim prophetic things when they're really not. Lots of people make claims for religious experiences when they're not. Um, but that's very much a part of the world that we're going back to again right now. Um, Cassandra is a prophetess. Um, and she's going to see things that other people don't see. Okay, So um, just hold on to these similarities, if, if I can call them that, these parallels between the world of nature in ancient times and the biblical world, because there are similarities, affinities between them. Both worlds knew that nothing, nothing went on, nothing went on that did not involve the gods. And in every work we've read, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, and now in the Oristia, people who deny the gods, who want to act like they're not there, are out of touch with reality. Remember the suitors. The gods came and spoke to them directly. They kept ignoring them, denying them. It was the people who were open to the divine that went on to live better lives. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas. Um, remember when we were reading Boethius, Boethius said, there is no bad fortune, there is nothing going on in the world um, in which God is not at work trying to turn evil into good. He's taking all the stupid things we do and trying to bring better things at him. That's what God does. Um, our church says, be always and everywhere thankful. Our faith says, there's always something going on we don't see um, if, we, if we just held on, if we hoped or had faith. So, so um, um, those are just some of the things. The one thing that I didn't get to that I want to get to now, because to me it's a, it's a focus for our readings. Um, we didn't talk about this at all in the last couple of classes, and it's, it may seem a little bit outrageous right now, but... Um, here I go. For the last month in our readings, the readings have been focused on um, 
prophecies. This is our readings. They all have to do with Elizabeth and Mary um, and Joseph. An angel came to Mary and said that she was going to conceive a son. And she said yes. So a God, or sorry, an, um, an angel coming from God, came to a human being and said she would conceive a son that a divine spirit would enter her and a conception would take place. Okay. Same thing happened, a similar, a similar thing happened with um, Elizabeth. Um, John was conceived, and you know when um, Mary comes to visit, that the babe jumps. And in an amazing, oracular kind of moment, Elizabeth says, blessed is she. I mean, that the child in her womb jumped. That there was some holy connection between what was going on in her womb and Mary's, between John and Christ. And John would be the forerunner, the one who would announce Christ. So divine things are entering human beings, and lots of people are not going to believe them. These things don't happen. But those are at the center of our faith, okay? The reason I want to, we'll see the relevance of this in a second. I just hold on to all these things I'm trying to pull together. What Mary did was to say yes to God when he asked her to do something and entered her, or asked for her cooperation so that he could enter her. Mary's called the mother of the church. She's, she's the mother of God. Um, it was through her that God entered the world. Let me put this more directly. It was through a woman, because only a woman can bring life into the world. Men can't. So those are some of the archetypes I'd like everybody to just hold on to. If, if, if their relevance isn't clear right now, just hold on to them for a minute if you can, okay? So those are the background things, okay? Now to get to the book itself. It seems to me that the, the great theme of the book is that there are all these disorders from the past entering a family and they get passed on down through the family line. That, that corresponds exactly to what we believe happened in the fall. Adam and Eve sinned. We've inherited that sin. We're all a part of that family, even if we have separate families. We all, we all have to struggle with those sins. The great theme is the, the disorders inherited from the past that cannot get, that the, the present cannot shake itself free of. They keep returning um, the violence that was enacted generations before um, continues into the present. It's cyclical. Old wounds get carried forward. And there's a special danger, it seems to me, for woman because it's the woman who carries the child in her womb. She's closer to the bloodline. She's the one who gives birth. It's through her that a child comes. Um, so, th these sins from the past that keep returning um, and the harm that they continue to do the present, um, there's a struggle in this play to answer them. You know that at the end of the play, Clytemnestra and Aegisthus um, think they've put to rest those sins. And it shows how stupid they are. 
I mean, it really shows how stupid they are. They think they've, that they've taken, they've avenged those wrongs. And what we're going to find out in the next play is um, they're just the beginning of new disasters. So Aeschylus is going to the very heart of our human nature. The evil that is present, the sufferings that come from it, and the efforts that humans take to try to answer it, and the stupid things they do to continue it, even while they're trying to answer it. Those are the great themes. The role of the chorus is really crucial. We can ignore it because it seems not to take a part in the action, but it doesn't. Because the chorus, remember, we knew this from Eliot in Murder of the Cathedral, the chorus always contemplate, meditates on what's going on in the city, but it always does it from a detached point of view. So the value of the chorus is that it can help us see things, but it tends to be cowardly. It, it doesn't enter into the immediate action evolving the tragic figures. We saw that in Eliot. One of the reasons we saw it in Eliot is because Eliot saw it here. Eliot was trying to bring that past forward, just the way so many of the poets have done. Um, and finally, what I said earlier, that one of the interesting things about this play is that even though it offers a completed action in itself, um, it's only the beginning of something that's going to continue through the next two plays. So we've got, we've got to stay with it through the next two plays to see how these things are answered. Okay? Reminds me, I don't know if, I, I think we said, when I was a kid I used to watch Commander Cody. I can't remember, is that the name of it? Commander Rocket, I can't remember. And every week I'd watch it and it, it, the, 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 the daily you know, seek or episode would show Cody dying or something. And I couldn't wait to see it the next week to see what would, what would happen. This play is like that. I mean, it seems to be completed, and yet we're going to learn the next play that it wasn't completed at all, that things are actually going to get darker. So those are some of the major themes that I just want to throw out. What I'd like to do right now is go through just a few of the passages, just to recall them, and then I've got the two major questions that I asked last week that I'd like to spend our time on. But let me let me stop here. Any We've got to get to the play, but any any questions about the the sort of general principles that I'm putting out there between the Bible and our faith and a play that seems have seems to have nothing to do with it? You know, we're back in a natural world in the ancient Greek world, and not we're not in Israel with so. Yahweh or. You know the line of Abraham and David that leads to Christ. We're in another world, but I hope everybody's seen what I'm suggesting once again. That there are things that this poet sees that are pointing towards our faith in amazing ways. That that these poets in the ancient world, the great ones, saw some things that. That show there's something in nature. There's something in nature at work um, that the great poets see, and I think it's harder to see in a scientific world because in a scientific world we tend to move away from the natural world into abstractions, mathematical, you know, realms of probability. But here we're we're back in a natural world in which human beings are acting, and it's 
it's it's amazing. It, it seems to me that what's going on, in so many ways, seems to point to something in Revelation. But um, any questions before we look at the book? That's just sort of background setup. Tracy, have you guys all read? Have you read the Libation Bears and the? Has anybody finished the series yet? You know, one of the just an interesting. I've gone online to check on some of these things to see what people are saying. I'm just stunned with some modern critics of doing. I'm just stunned with genetic studies and or I'm not genetic but um, gender. Sorry, gender studies and and I'm I'm not going to name the the program, but I went on one of them that's probably one of the most reliable ones. They had a whole study guide on the Agamemnon, a whole study guide on the libation bears, and they had nothing on the Eumenides. There's no way you can understand the Agamemnon or the libation bears if you haven't read the Eumenides. It's a trilogy. You have to read all of them, and yet they didn't have a study guide on the third one. It just shocked me. It just shocked me. But anyway, Fred, go ahead. I just, I guess maybe it's as much a question as a comment, but I've read the first two books. I haven't read the last one yet. But the chorus um, in Libation seems to be much more active in the play than what we've seen in the past and, and even in the first, first in Agamemnon, at least to me. And I was just curious if, if anyone else sees that, and if so, I, I suspect there's a reason for that. If if it, if everybody could just wait on that, because Fritz, just I want okay. that's our next play, Sorry. you know. Because wait on, because what I, can we do this, Fred? When we start next week, we'll start with that question, because to me it's a really good question. Sure. But I want to, I want to right now. I want to. I really want to tackle something in this play that I think, it, it certainly at least for me, is very tough. Okay, let's, I'm going to just read through some passages to try to quickly get through the play, to recall it, to bring it to mind so it's fresh in everybody's mind, okay? You know that it begins with um, the guard, the watchman, waiting for um, the light towers to go off to indicate that the war is over. The city's been waiting for years for this war to finish, and it's lived under a shadow of gloom. And then we get the news that, or from the flash towers, the signs that the war has ended finally. So it, it brings to a close this long period of grief and suffering, okay? Turn to page 45. I'm just gonna I'm gonna quickly race through some scenes just to try to pull everything together for a minute. Um, on page 44, remember Clytemnestra comes out with the news that the war is over, and the chorus is questioning her and wondering why she's making that judgment, and she's tells them that she knows from the fire towers going off. And she says at the bottom of 44, The kinds of got Troy upon this very day. I think the city echoes with a clash of cries. 
Pour vinegar and oil under the self-same sum bowl. You could not say they mix in friendship, but fight on. Go down. Trojans are stooping now to gather in their arms their dead. Husbands and brothers, children, lean to clasp age who begot them. She's got a very vivid picture of the cost of war. The city's collapsing. Mothers are picking up their children. Bodies are being buried. The Achaeans have their midnight work after the fighting that sets them down to feed on all the city has. Ravenous, headlong, by no rank and file assigned. Go down. And if they reverence the gods who hold the city and all the holy temples of the captured land, they, the despoilers, might not be despoiled in turn. Let not their passion overwhelm them. She seems to be saying prayers that the men at war do nothing to make the gods angry at them, to give any justification for vengeance. Um, go down a few lines. The run to safety and home is yet to make. They must turn the pole and run the backstretch of the double course. They've got all the way there now. Now can they finish it? Yet though the host come home without offense to high gods, even so the anger of these slaughtered men may never sleep. Oh, let there be no fresh wrong done. And everything she's saying, she's hoping that the way the men have conducted the war has been good, and now that the war is over, they not do anything to despoil. That would be seen as an act of irreverence to the gods. Um, on 46, 46, sorry. Um, at the bottom 46, let there be wealth without tears, enough for the wise man who will ask no further. There is not any armor in gold against perdition for him who spurns the high altar of justice down to the darkness. But this is the chorus. The chorus is aware that one of the dangers is that in having sacked a city, the men can be so overtaken by greed, they can plunder the city, and in that greed, um, damn themselves. Um, bring on retribution by the gods. There is no more any armor in gold against perdition for him who spurns the high altar of justice down to the darkness. The sins they can commit after a war, when they've conquered a people, now they have the power, can actually lead to their um, perdition. Um, go to 48. The god of war, money changer of dead bodies, hold the balance of his spear in the fighting. From the corpse fires at Ilium sent to their de dearest, the dust heavy and bitter with tears shed, packing smooth the urns with ashes that once were men. The, I read this poetry and I think, you know, we, we think we're so smart because we're modern. If you, if you read the language of Aeschylus 2,000 years ago, I, I, give me a poet, a contemporary poet, who can compare with him in language what he does with words. It's just stunning to watch what he does. Heavy and bitter with tears shed, packing smooth the urns with ashes that once were men. Is there a better description of the horrors of war than an image of ashes that we know were once men? 
wiped out. They're not human anymore. They praise him through their tears, how that man knew well the craft of battle, how another went down, splendid in the slaughter, and all for some strange woman. Thus they mutter in secrecy, and the slow anger creeps below their grief at Atreus' sons and their quarrels. She knows that all of these things go back to this curse of Atreus, what happened between Atreus' son and the two women they married, Helen, and they keep presenting Helen, in fact, on the next page on 49, it is like a woman indeed to take the rapture before the fact is shown. Helen, the men, risk vengeance from the gods because of their pride. And so does Helen. The battle was fought over here. So again and again we're seeing the danger that humans put themselves in because of their arrogance, their pride, the way they stand above other people. Uh, yeah, hold on. Carl, go ahead. When you have a page number, could you also give a line number? Sure, sure, <laughs> sure. Same yeah, we can find it more easily. Sure, sure. Um, so on page 52, on page 52, about line 570, 575, so somewhere, the herald now has come from Agamemnon, to inform the city that the king's returning. So we've seen the watchman make the announcement. We've seen Clytemnestra declare. We've seen the chorus engaging both, and it's 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 Aeschylus's way of giving a background, creating a real context involving all these people, so we actually experience what's going on. By the way, hi. <laughs> Hi, Jolie. Good to see you again. Sorry, I, I saw you come in, but I was—I wanted to get through these passages, but it's good to see you again. Um, the Herald is saying, now, now remember this, because to me it is, it is, this is absolutely crucial for this, this trilogy. Aeschylus fought in several wars. He's not a romantic. He doesn't sentimentalize war. He knows, he, he knows what it means to be wounded, to die, to live with men dying, to see the cost of wars. He, he sentimentalizes nothing. He was in wars against the Persians, and he knows that if they had not, the, if they'd not gone to war with Persia, Athens would have, been, would have become a subject state. They, they would have lost their freedom as people and become a subject nation. So those battles were crucial for them. As a matter of fact, it seems to me they added to what happened that, that a democracy came out of that, this belief in the freedom for people um, to not be under a tyrant, to have the choices to live their lives the way they wanted, to follow their gods the way they wanted. So he's been at war. He knows the cost of war. He will not romanticize war. This is a guy, this is a guy who's been at war, he knows it. And yet the focus of his play, on the one hand, is men at war, but here immediately at home, it's a woman. And he's setting these two things against each other. What, we're, what we've been reading so far is all the possible evils that men can commit in war, what men do. Now the herald comes, and he says in the middle of page 52, about line 570, that time is gone for us and gone for those who died. The war's over. What he's saying is evil's been conquered. 
God, God, it drives me nuts when I read this. It's a little bit like Chamberlain coming after the First World War and saying, we don't want to go to war with Germany again because we just had a war. And you all know what happened. Churchill said, stop Hitler now because if we don't stop him now. It's going to... we, could have, we could have gone to war with Hitler two years before the war started and lost, what, a couple thousand of men? We lost millions and millions of human lives because we didn't go to war earlier because people did not want to go back to war. The Herald is saying, that time's gone for us and gone for those who died. War's over. That, that time's gone. Never, never again need they rise up nor care again for anything. Why must a, a live man count the numbers of the slain? Why grieve at fortune? I, the brilliance of Aeschylus just knocks me over. This guy knows the cost of war as well as anybody. And he's presenting a herald who's saying, war's gone. Let's be thankful. This won't happen again. Why must a live man count the numbers of his slain? He goes on. Go down to the bottom of the page. Upon a time that arg- So this is like somebody writing lead- stories now about the heroics of the war. You know the stories you're going to tell? Um, upon a time the Argive host took Troy. All the heroic ballads that would be written. And on the houses of the gods who live in Hellas nailed the spoils to be, to be the glory of days long ago. And they who hear such things, those who hear those stories, shall call this city blessed. And the leaders of the host and the high graces of God shall be exalted that did this. You have the story. Now I hope everybody's hearing the ironies because there are, there are not groups of lies. The irony in this story never stops, no matter what's going on. It makes us aware that there's a surface reading of something and an irony. Something else is going on. Do we see beneath the appearances through the whole story? Here's a herald saying, all these great things are done. Thank God they're over. We will have all these great stories commemorating the heroics of that, of that great war effort. Um, 55. Um, the Herald's describing what happened on the way home and you know that because of the impieties the sins of the men at war the wrongs they committed that a large part of the returning army was destroyed at sea on page 55 but carrying a fair message of our hope's salvation, come home to a glad city's hospitality. How shall I mix my gracious news? We won with foul <clears throat> and tell of the storm and the Achaeans by God's anger sent. For they of old the deepest enemies, sea and fire, made a conspiracy and gave the oath of hand to, to blast and ruin our unhappy Argive, Argive army. Go down a few lines, 660. But when the sun came up again to light the dawn, we saw the Aegean Sea blossoming, God, blossoming with dead men for men of Achaia and the wreckage of their ships. <clears throat> so there's mention of some of the men they can't account for. Menelaus is one of them, you know, and Odysseus. We know that, by the way, all of this, I hope everybody sees it. All of this shows what a good reader 
Aeschylus was of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Because we know from those stories that Menelaus didn't get home right away and neither did Odysseus. Okay. Now Agamemnon returns on page 60 and says middle of page 60 about line 830 this to the gods a prelude strung to length of words but for the thought you spoke I heard and I remember and stand behind you he is respectful um, heartfelt um, he expresses his longing for Odysseus he was the one man he could count on for his integrity he's not among the survivors so he continues to mourn the war, the effects of the war. He, he doesn't know where his brother is. Remember, Menelaus isn't accounted for. So Agamemnon's returning with a victory, but two of his dearest friends he has no idea about. So he carries war wounds. There's a longing, a, a sorrow in his soul because he's missing the men he loved most. Menelaus' his brother in Odysseus. And then he having expressed that sorrow, he turns to the people and says, Now in the business of the city and the gods we must ordain full conclave of all citizens and take our counsel. We shall see what element is strong and, and plan that it shall keep its virtues still, but that which men must be healed, which must be healed, we must use medicine or burn or amputate with kind intention, take all means at hand that might beat down corruption's pain. He knows that when men are absent, a city is going to go to hell. We saw that in the Odyssey. He knows that from the Odyssey. When all the men are gone and all the boys grow up without fathers, there are problems everywhere. Problems everywhere. So he knows that the city's been without its leaders and wants to do what he should. So to the king's house, to the home about the hearth, I take my way with greeting to the gods within who sent me forth and who have brought me home once more, my prize was conquest. May it never fail again. Now, Clytemnestra welcomes him. She, she takes a moment to tell him that Orestes is not there because she was trying to protect their son because of all that was going on. And she encourages him to walk on the, the purple path um, that was laid out by the cloaks, the purple cloaks that... Um, the people had strewn for him. Um, go. Um, Agamemnon demurs repeatedly. Keeps saying, "No, no, no! You don't walk the purple. For that's that's for that's set aside for the gods. To do that would be a blasphemy." She presses him until finally he gives in, and then she says on page sixty-four about line nine sixty, "The sea is there, and who shall <clears throat> drain its yield?" It breeds precious as silver, ever of itself renewed. By God's grace, this house keeps full sufficiency of all. Poverty is a thing beyond its thought. Remember, Agamemnon's bringing back booty. So in terms of wealth, they're, they are far wealthier now than they were before. I could have voted to trample many splendors down had such decree been ordained from the oracles those days when all my study was to bring home your life. This is page 65 at the top. She's saying, every moment has been a prayer for him that he would return. She's been looking forward to this moment. For when the foot 
root li- when the root lives, yet the leaves will come again to fence the house with shade against the dog star's heat. God, I mean, the poetry is amazing. Now you've come home to keep your hearth and house. You bring with you the symbol of our winter's warmth. But when Zeus ripens the green clusters into wine, there shall be coolness in the house upon the day. Zeus has blessed this homecoming. They're celebrating a victory. The king is home. The wife is there to greet him. Um, She's done everything she can. She's made it clear to the chorus, to the herald, everybody. She's made all these preparations to receive her husband home. When Zeus ripens the green clusters into wine, there should be coolness in the house upon those days because the master ranges his own halls once more. Zeus, Zeus accomplisher, accomplish these my prayers. Let your mind bring these things to pass. It is your will. Now you know that what happens now is that um, Cassandra appears and um, um, I'm going to come back to this. What I'd like to do is just finish the play. You know that she descends from the chariot because Clytemnestra comes out to try to persuade her into the house. Um, On page 67 in the middle, she says, I have no leisure to stand outside the house and waste my time on this woman. She has nothing but scorn for her. Cassandra, remember, was given as a gift by the soldiers. Um, So she's here as a concubine and a reward, a mistress. but, um, But she's there. Clytemnestra returns to the house, and then we get this vision of what's actually taking place. Okay, I want to hold off on that because you're all aware of it. Um, what she sees is the original act of um, of between Atreus and his brother, when a brother takes the children of his brother and boils them, cuts them up, and serves them as a meal. Okay. What Cassandra sees is that initial crime being reenacted in this moment. So she's seeing two time periods coalesce, become one. And the the core stands by in horror. Some of them say, let's go in, and some of them say, wait. Um, And then Cassandra and her lover will come outside um, declaring that they've just killed the king and Cassandra. Okay. Clytemnestra, what did I say? Clytemnestra. I just want to go to the end very quickly and then come back to the scene because this is the scene I want to focus on. Um, on page 75, when Cassandra is aware of what's going on, on page 75 she says about line 1260, O flame and pain that sweeps me once again, my Lord Apollo, King of Light, the pain, I me, the pain. This is the woman lioness who goes to bed with the wolf when her proud lion ranges far away. She knows that um, the king will be killed and that she will too. Um, she'll say on page 77 at the very bottom, line thirteen fifteen. So I'm going in and mourning as I go, my death in Agamemnon's, let my life be done. She's going knowing that she's a sacrificial victim. She's giving up her life. Bear witness to me when I die, when falls for me a woman slain another woman, 
And when a man dies for this wickedly mated man, here's my death, I claim the stranger's grace of you. She claims the grace of a stranger. Now you know that um, um, that Clytemnestra and Aegisthus kill the two and then come out. On page 83, wait, hold on, wait, hold on. On page um, 83, about line 1470 or so, the Course says, Divinity that kneel on this house and the two strains of the blood of Tantalus in the hands and hearts of women you steer, the strength tearing my heart, standing above the corpse obscene as some carrion crow. She sings the crippled song and is proud. We're taken back to the myth of Tantalus when Tantalus, um, remember, cut up his son and served them to the gods. Um, when the chorus begins to um, express their anger and disapproval, immediately Clytemnestra and Agisthos get firm and take control and make it clear that they are in control of the city now. On page 88, in the middle of the page, about 1630, it's just with words like these that you'll make you... Um, it's in just words as these will make you cry in pain. Not yours, the lips of Orpheus, no, quite otherwise, whose voice of rapture dragged all creatures in his train. You shall be dragged for baby whimpering, sobbed out in rage. Once broken, you'll be better to deal with. Of course, how shall be you be lord of the men of Argos, you who planned the murder of this man, yet could not dare to act it out and cut him down with your own hand? <laughs> Hold on, I'll come back to that. I guess this. No, clearly the deception was the woman's part, and I was suspect that had hated him so long. Still with his money, I shall endeavor to control the citizens. The mutinous man shall feel your yoke, drag at his neck. No, no corn-fed racing colt that runs free trace, but hunger, grim companion of the dark dungeon, shall see him broken in the, in the um, hand at last. He will do everything he can to break um, the citizens' will and keep them under control. The two of them are cl um, claiming um, power, and both of them believe that they have finally answered the injustices of the past. On page 89 at the bottom, Yes, but think of these foolish lips that blossom into leering jibes. Think of the taunts they spit against me, Daring destiny and power, sober opinion lost in insults, hurled against my majesty. In Clytemnestra, have the power now. On the very last page. Lines. It's the last page. Have your way, gorge and grow fat in justice while the power is yours. Agisthos, you shall pay, make no mistake, for this misguided insolence. The very last words, Clytemnestra. These are howls of impotent rage. Forget them, dearest. You and I have the power. We too shall bring good order to our house. Both of them said earlier that they have finally answered the curses of the past. Um, they, have, they have brought peace finally to what was done. So that's the action, okay? But at the center of it is this. If you can go back now to... 
um, Cassandra. This is where... Um, now, the one thing that I didn't say in that opening that I should have, um, because it bears directly on this, you know that the this is extraordinary, because my question is, where is Christ? Where is the city? Um, are there intimations? Because all of this is so openly anti-Christian, anti-human. The whole story began with the myth, myth of Tantalus when he took his son Pelops, cut him up, and served him to the gods. And you know that Atreus and his brother did the same, so that that curse continued, and that in one ways it's being answered again. Clytemnestra um, killed Agamemnon um, and took control. What we have in the, in the mythic part of the story that's only the backdrop of this, it, it doesn't take part in the story, it's a mythic backdrop, is an inversion of the Eucharist. It's an inversion of the Eucharist. God offered himself as food so that we could live. When we celebrate the Eucharist each week, we are invited to participate, to actually eat, eat his body, cut up or served separately. It's one of the reasons the, the Jews turned away from him. Remember the episode in the Copernican temple, the synagogue? You know, it's in John, I think it's six, I can't remember. When Christ said, unless you eat this bread, unless you drink this wine, you'll have no part with me. I am the bread of life. Unless you do this, you will not have life forever. Your fathers ate the bread of manna and they died. You have to do this. That was a command. Okay? And the description in the, in, in the Bible is the Jews were murmuring because it was too hard for them. Because they, you know that according to the Jewish religion, to drink blood was a sacrilege. The idea that you would drink the blood of a human or, and of a human claiming to be God couldn't have run more contrary to their beliefs. And they left. And the description is, they were disciples. They were murmuring. They left. So here in the Tantalus myth, that's the backdrop for the story, we've got an inversion. You've got a human cutting up humans and serving them to the gods. So we've got an inversion there, and that scene reenacted, okay? And here's where I want to go, if everybody could just go to that Cassandra episode for a second. Um, on page 71, um, Cassandra says on page 70, in the middle of the page, 1125, so there, there, keep from his mate the bull caught in the folded wood. A bull is a sacrificial animal. She's describing Agamemnon in sacrificial terms. He's a bull going to be sacrificed. She knows that. She sees it. On page 71 at the top, 1140, you are possessed of God, mazed at heart, to sing a song, a song, to sing your own death song, the wild lyric as in clamor for itties, 
Eddie's over and over again her long life of tears weeping forever grieves the brown nightingale. Cassandra, oh, for the nightingale's pure song and a fate like hers, with fashion of beating wings, the gods clothed her about, and a sweet life gave her and without lamentation, but mine is the sheer edge of the tearing of the tearing iron. I gave you that um um, I think I, I sent you that note on Here. oh yeah on the on the Philomena myth. You all remember? Um, Progne Philomena sent for her sister, um, and she sent her husband um, Tyrius to get her. Tyrius was so overcome with lust that he raped his sister, um, and threatened to kill her if she said anything about it. In the note that I sent you, you know what happened. Philomela said she would not um, keep it to herself. He cut out her tongue. And um, um, this, is the, this is the quote that we have. Philomela, no, I'll avenge you in my own time in answer to the baseness of your fiendish crime. She will speak it out. Um, she'll share with everybody, if a god be there, share my plight, accept my prayer. Because she couldn't speak, she wove her story into a tapestry and gave it to her sister, Procne. When Procne realized what happened, she took her son. This is the image here. Go back to Aeschylus on that page. You are possessed of God, mazed at heart to sing your own death song, the wild liar, as in clamor for Edis, Edis over and over again, her long life. Procne took their son, Edis, cut it up, cut him up, and served it to Tyrius. So the, the original Tantalos myth um, is reenacted again. So it's in an illusion right now. Cassandra's prophesizing it. Um, she's seeing the scene reenacted, except in this instance, it's women. And when Procne um, serves her son up to her husband, and the husband finds out, he chases the women with an axe to kill them. The two women make a prayer to the gods, and if you've read my notes, you know what happens. Um, they're both turned into birds. Procne's turned into a swallow and Philomela into a nightingale. Um, and so we have the Ode to the Nightingale, the Nightingale myth. Here at the center of this story is a, um, a horrendous woman, a, a vicious, blasphemous woman. We are presented a story in which men commit all these sins at war. They had to go to battle. They had to do it. I mean, the, the story makes it clear. But the way they executed that war led them to do things they shouldn't have, and they're finally punished for it. Here at home, we've got this image of a woman who is so different from Agamemnon. I mean, I'm going back to the question that I asked last week. Agamemnon is presented as a really good man. And the contrast is only sharpened because Cassandra, I mean, um, Clytemnestra is vicious. She's blasphemous. She uses the gods treacherously. Everything she does when she says, I hope nothing happens. I hope the gods protect your homecoming. She does not want to lose her vengeance. She's only praying that he gets home so she can kill him. So we're not watching something innocent or nice. The, the black-white contrast is pretty stark. 
But here in the center of this story is this woman, Cassandra, who sees everything. And here's the interesting thing. Turn to page 73. It's 73, about line 1205 or so. She's engaged with the chorus, and Cassandra says, There was a time I blushed to speak about these things. This is the exchange between her and Apollo, who loved her and whom she loved. True, they who prosper take on airs of vanity, the chorus of dismissing it. This woman, talking about this religious fervor she has. Yes, then he wrestled with me, and he breathed delight. I take that as an allusion to a sexual act. I mean, out, you know, I mean, not physically, but he wrestled with her. He breathed delight. Did you come to the getting of children then, as people do? Did did you mate with him, conceived? I promised that to Loxus, but I broke my word. She didn't carry through with it. You who are already ecstatic in the skills of God, yes, even then I read my city's destiny. You know what happened after the after that? He punishes her by by giving her the power of prophecy, but in a way that makes it impossible for people to hear her. So she sees things that other people don't see, um, even though it would help them if they didn't. So she has a way of seeing the world that's more truthful than the sight that anybody else has, but nobody pays any heed to her. The interesting thing about this moment of prophecy, and I can't put it, I don't think I can put it any clearer, she sees the whole. Nobody else does. I hope that's clear. She sees time layered. She sees that what's, being hap what's happening then is a reenactment of what happened in mythic time, generations before. So she not only sees what's going on historically, she sees mythically in what's happening um, involving the gods in human affairs. That's something nobody else in the place. She sees holes, and the other people can't understand them because they don't see that way. Now here's the interesting thing about this for me. This is not about Christ. It's not about Mary. A God came to Mary and asked something of her and actually conceived. She said yes. Christ came out of that. Here we've got a woman who sees something or who's, who's invited to conceive with the divine who says no. And she has powers of seeing things that nobody else does. So here's, here's my question. Um, Aeschylus has given us this contrast between minute war and a good king. That's how he's presented in the story. And Clytemnestra, who is very, very dark and vicious. Is, there, is he saying something about women when they go bad. Why is, why, why is he showing her as he does, focusing on her as much as he does? That's the first question. And what's the difference between Clytemnestra and Cassandra? Okay, Aeschylus has set up stark contrast between men and at least a, a woman, a queen here. Why? What's the difference? What's he, why is he doing that? And the second is, 
there's this strong, at least a stronger contrast between Clytemnestra and Cassandra. Women are going to carry the action of this trilogy. It's going to go forward with the Furies and, and Clytemnestra and the Libation Bears. They're going to be feminine figures. Orestes is going to kill his mother. The Furies are going to get carried forward and the, and the play is going to be resolved. The action is going to be resolved with a woman. Let's just focus on the Agamemnon. What's he doing? Why is he showing this contrast as sharply as he does? And why is he setting these two women in contrast with each other too? What, what are your thoughts about what he's doing here? Any thoughts? Or any other thoughts or questions you guys want to raise? This is a pretty stark... It, it, to me, it go, it's stunning. If you think about the Tantalus myth, you know, with the killing of kids, sacrificing kids... Um, the way human beings do, the, the, the way in which that's an, an inversion of the Eucharist and what's going on with um, Cassandra and Clytemnestra here, it's pretty, pretty stark. Anyway, any thoughts? Any, any, um, any thoughts about those questions? The first one, why this sharp contrast between Agamemnon and Clytemnestra? Nobody. <laughs> I like. I wish we. I like what he just did, Jolie. Tell him he has my support. Tell him he has my support. I will let him know. <laughs> Jeannie, what's your response to this? It's a pretty dark play. What are your thoughts? This is a man who knows war. He's been in war. He knows. He knows war. He knows that it has to be done. He also knows the evil of it. He's showing something wrong in a town. You know, the central figure is Clytemnestra. Agamemnon comes home. What, why that? What do you guys make of that? What's, what's your response? Uh, personally, Bob, this is this is deep. I mean, you always hear the term growing up, oh, it's like a Greek tragedy, right? <laughs> but I don't think I ever really understood what that really meant. Yep. And that anything I have seen in my life sure as hell ain't a Greek tragedy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I... This, like I said, this is dark. Yeah, yeah. And I guess yep. part of it is, is just trying to comprehend or try and maybe, I don't know if, it's, I don't know if under, understand is the right word or not. Um, because it is a fictional play, right? And there's characters that do certain things and have actions. But but the impetus behind, okay, why is she that way? And I and I'm it's, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, it, you know, yeah. it, I, this is a, definitely a struggle. Um, but, but it's just trying to comprehend it. So I mean, you're asking like level three, level four questions. I'm still trying to figure out level one, level two. <laughs> I sorry. I wish. I, I wish I were better. What, by the way, before I go on, Mark, I'm so grateful for your words. Honestly, I, I can't tell you because there's so. I, honestly, I can't tell you how glad I am that you said that because that it, that needs to be said. That and you said it well. That what we're looking at is so deep and so obscure, and yet he's so clear in what he's doing. You know, it, it, he's not. 
what his control of language and his depiction of character um, to me is is overpowering and um, and it couldn't be darker. Humans are sacrificing their kids in what humans do. There's a real hubris to the action of humans that have an effect on kids. And it can't be more gruesome than it is here. This, by the way, Faulkner had this on his mind when he did The Sound and the Fury. I remember we talked about it that you would never have known because you hadn't read the Orstaya. Faulkner had this play on his mind. Eliot had this play on his mind in Murder of the Cathedral. Parents do things that have an effect on children far beyond it at seemingly out of proportion to what they're doing. And Aeschylus is making that clear, absolutely clear. Here, I want to read one thing before we go on. I'm, I'm just grateful for your words, Mark, because they're, they're so right on it. It's like a doorway to open to deeper things, and you just sort of made a door. This is from a note by um, um, D.H. Lawrence. You may not know the name. He's the he was an important, very very important modern writer in in Britain. He's the one who wrote Lady Chatterley's Lover, which was a you know everybody had to read it because it was supposed to be obscene. I mean, if you look at what's going on in literature today, you'd think children could read this. You know, it's but he wrote um, Lady Chatterley's Lover, Sons and Lovers, and some other novels. He was really important. He read this play and had this to say. Do you know Cassandra? This is in a letter. Do you know Cassandra and Aeschylus and Homer? Because she's she's an she's an she's what to me she's one of the most important feminine figures in all of literature. She's a woman. She's speaking about women who had their tongues cut out. One of the women got so vicious she killed her own son. Um. And the women go off as nightingales, singing. Okay? So Cassandra's an important, and she's an important contrast to Clytemnestra as a woman. So we've got these two feminine figures. Lawrence says this, Do you know Cassandra and Aeschylus and Homer? She is one of the world's great figures, and what the Greeks and Agamemnon did to her is symbolic of what mankind has done to her since. He has no kind words for what the Greeks did with her or the rest of us in what we do with her. What he says is everybody misreads her or, or doesn't understand. Here's what he says. What mankind done to her since raped and despoiled and mocked her to their own ruin. He's saying that what we're doing in the way that we read her is raping her. We're not, we're, not, we're not seeing what she's doing. It's not your brain you must trust to, nor your will, which are the two governing things in our nature. It's not your brain you must trust to, nor your will, but to that fundamental pathetic faculty for receiving the hidden waves that come from the depths of life and for transferring them to the unreceptive world. That is... If I can put it this way, sorry. It's, it's in that capacity to suffer for another, to feel another, and to help bring those feelings, which are a form of knowing, to a world that doesn't want to receive them. And let me put this another way. We all know that kids know long before they can ever conceptualize something. I'm going to take the part of kids for a minute. 
because all of us have been there. When something's going on in a family, when there are quarrels or divisions, we all know these, they're a part of our life, we all know them. Kids are going to know those divisions through their emotions. They're going to be sensitive, they will feel them and know them through their feelings. Can they conceptualize them? Can they explain them? Not a clue, not a way. Um, and let's not even make them divisions. There could be certain things going on in families where there are no quarrels. You don't even have to be quarreled. There are things that kids can know through their feelings long before they can ever express them. We all know that. If there's anything going on in this work that we're doing together, it's that poets make us sensitive to feel things ordinarily we don't see. Otherwise, why are we together? Yeah? I mean, we're, we're being helped to enter into our world more completely by what we feel through our hearts and what we know through our minds. Tate has called that knowledge carried to the heart that our feelings can open so that we can share in the sufferings of somebody else. It's not your brain you must turn to know your will, but to that fundamental pathetic faculty for receiving the hidden waves that come from the depths of life and for transferring them to the unreceptive world. It is something which happens below the consciousness and below the range of the will. It is something which is unrecognized and frustrated and destroyed. So when we think about these mythic images, so there's two time spaces in this world that were in the Agamemnon. There's the mythic world of what took place with Tantalus and Pelops and Atreus, you know, with the gods. Remember, Tantalus cut up his son and fed it to the gods. We're in a mythic world there. But in the Agamemnon, we're in the naturalistic world as we know it. We've come home to Argos. We're in a setting where now in which a woman is doing everything she can to get her husband back so she can kill him. So this ancient cycle of guilts and horrors enacted by parents on their kids is being carried forward. Okay. What T.S. or um, Lawrence is saying is that there is this faculty in the human soul, what he's calling the pathetic, to, to pathos, to feel the suffering of another, to know, to know through empathy, we could call it that. Cassandra has it in her depths. She suffers from it. Who's going to listen to her? The course isn't going to listen to her because to hear her would mean she'd be involved in suffering, or they would be involved in suffering, these men. They're not going to do it. They're not going to hear. Clytemnestra, is she going to hear? Absolutely not, because she's got her mind set on doing something. So at the center of this play is a, is a woman with these prophetic powers. She feels things that others can't, and she sees things. And I've suggested earlier that she sees the whole. She puts those two time layers together. She sees what's happening behind those doors. They're closed. The course can't see it. She sees something they don't. Um, they don't want to hear it. It's revealed to them when Clytemnestra and Agistos come out. So in the middle of this power struggle, in the middle of this world in Argos, that's defined in political terms, vengeance, power, wealth, getting back, 
In the middle of this is this momentary vision of a woman who herself is going to be sacrificed. So um, there is this prophetic vision being given. It's wounded and it's helpless. But that's the world um, Aeschylus has shown us in this play. And I think it's really important to look at the differences between men and women. Truly, I'm saying that. The difference between men whose evils are committed largely at war um, and, and a woman who's working through cunning, deception, blasphemies. Um, men do stupid things openly. <laughs> you know, what she's doing is um, cunning. And, and at the center of this world is this Cassandra figure um, who's seen the deeper meaning of it in the way other people can't. And all of it has to do with, at its roots, parents in their hubris, their pride, doing something with sins that are going to, I mean with their kids, they're going to hurt them. They're going to be death-like in some way. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know if anybody wants to take up those questions or marks. I thought what I thought what you did, Mark, was I'm so grateful for it. But I hope everybody sees the depth of what's going on here and, and why it's important. And I hope more than anything at this point, because this is only the first play. We've got two more plays to go. I hope everybody's seeing in some ways that East, like Homer, because go back to Homer. I, I said in the Iliad and the Odyssey that Homer had intimations of Christ. Return of the king. Um, Achilles only comes to himself when he acknowledges his sins and says, I let everybody down. I let everybody down. And he gives up his life. It's only when he does that that he can go back to the war and things will be okay. It's only when... A, that's the truth of the Iliad that I was suggesting there are intimations of Christ. Now we're going back into that ancient world, except we're doing it through Aeschylus, and I'm amazed because I'm watching Aeschylus take an image that's an inversion of the Eucharist, um, and a woman, a, a woman <laughs> who so loved God, and a God who so loved her that he wanted to enter her, and her response was no. There's an inversion of Mary. There are strange things going on. It's like we're on the other side of a world looking in and Christ came and revealed it. And we've got intimations of it here. Full of horrors, full of inversions. Um, but it's, it's amazing to me how much they're pointing to the world that was given to us through revelation. Um, and so often the world doesn't see it. So, give me a response of somebody. Jeannie, let me go back to you. You've been wringing your, you're wringing your head for, for the last 15 minutes. Come on, Jeannie, I want to hear your mind and heart in this. I don't know. It's almost as if um, Aeschylus is trying to show two, two versions of woman, the the evil scheming version and the poetic, prophetic one who understands 
everybody's suffering. Um, that's, that's all I can think of. I don't know. Anybody else? Heavy play. I'm so glad we're doing this. I'm just glad to be with you guys. Because this is a... I mean, Mark's right on. It is a dark... It seems... I mean, don't forget, by the way. Don't forget. Please don't forget. When we did Dante... Remember, Dante wanted to climb that mountain. You know... He couldn't go there without looking at dark things. And there's nothing in Dante that I'm aware of in literature that's more gruesome. I mean, we, we see the, the depths of human sin that we're all... We live in a world that doesn't, that doesn't want to admit sin. That's one of the things that makes it so much harder. If you keep going through the world thinking there's something wrong with you because you're in sin, then, you know, you want to go drink or, you know, or... But that's not the world that we're being given here. That's not our Christian world. Um, what, what Aeschylus is showing us is, is very similar to what Dante shows us in the Inferno. The, the, we, carry, we carry these depths, and one of the, I think one of the problems with the modern world is we, we have so very little help in seeing them. You know, everything about the modern world make, makes everything want to be good and nice and I hope everybody. I hope everybody knows that even even if I seem to be very dark right now, that we're all. This is all heading towards a resolution. <laughs> that that Aeschylus is going to answer this, but right now, he's he's looking at very very dark things. Any other any other comments or Julie? Did you have something? Yeah, I was just going to say. You keep repeating this over in themes and and throughout the, the the literature that I've listened to, disorders from the past entering the family and passed on that keep returning, and you know I just think that's so. Um, uh, this is a really dark example of that, but I think it's so so true today. And we just don't talk about it, you know. And to me, what we're saying here is making it real. For me, I mean, I don't know about it, but I think all of us experience this to some degree. No, um, yeah, I agree. This is just part of life. And it just makes it, um, gives clarity. To and what? And you've repeated that over and over oh, yeah. again in all, yeah. in, in all of your, your, your lectures that I've listened to. And that just really resonates with me. I just think that's real important for me. I think for all of us, yeah. Jeannie, did you have something again? Was that no? Tracy. Well, I'm trying to work out what you said at the end about feeling like we're on the other side of the world, but it's pointing to a revelation that we have had. And so I think about Aeschylus and he didn't know he didn't have the view that we have to look back. But he must have been dealing with realities of, you know, and those we do carry forward in our human nature. Um, so I guess, uh, and yeah, I think you're right. We don't talk about this stuff. And so, you know, if you, if you become aware of your sins on your path to sainthood, you know, Bishop Barron says the more you become, you know, 
the closer you right. grow in saintliness, the more you're aware of your right, right. weakness. And so, but then, you know, you live in a world where nobody has any weaknesses. Nobody apologizes. Right, nobody, right, right. You know, so right. Like, <laughs> oh, God. Drives, drives you nuts. It drives me nuts. <laughs> you, you guys are one of my holds on sanity. Everybody at Bob, because when Bob and I get on the phone, all we do is talk about how nuts the world is. <laughs> oh, God. Well, we're... Time's up. Carl, did you have something? Were you... You're on mute. Carl, the audio is not on. I'm, I, I'm not hearing you. Is your audio on? Let's try that. Yeah, you're good. You're good. Uh, everyone else is at a, a much deeper level in looking at this than I am. I, I see Clytemnestra as an angry, jealous woman who missed out on all the fame, um, the riches of the war that her husband's coming back. You know, to enjoy, and she's been living the good life, has a lover on the side, and wants to make life easier for herself. She's just bad person, and I, I guess I don't see all of the religious undertones and historical, you know, um, stories of uh, the Greek gods behind this as leading her to the point. I, I think it's a recent thing, and she's you know just. Just a bad person. Bad, bad to me is just. Sorry, did you? What do you, Carl? What do you do with her? Um, can you hear? Can everybody hear, Doc? What do you What do you do with her statement that she's um, avenging the death of her daughter? That Agamemnon killed her daughter. I think that's real too. I think the real, the real, I mean, the interesting thing when you put those things, because vengeance, actually, let me ask this question before we go. Is Clytemnestra, wait, wait what I would want to add is that what, what, what makes her beyond bad, because people, people do things like this, what takes her beyond bad that makes her evil is her blasphemies, the way she uses the gods and lying you know, to carry this out. There's a depth of spiritual quality there that you just can't deny. But let me ask this question, because Suzanne, when we were talking about it the other day, is Clytemnestra out just for vengeance? Or let me ask it differently, in terms of the play. If a person sets out for vengeance, in this case, it's Clytemnestra, it's a woman, once she sets out for vengeance, is that finally the only thing that motivates her, is, or is there something more? Do we just leave it that she's being bad, or do we enter into other spiritual depths and see that there's something more besides vengeance? When you look at Clytemnestra, can can we just say that she's only out for vengeance and you leave it there, or is there more? Are there other depths? You know, if she was only out for vengeance, she would have taken care of her other two children. Like if she was really, if this was about that child, you know, that got sacrificed, then her other two children would have been as precious to her too. And, you know, I, I think she was out for, like Carl says, power and her life the way she wanted. I mean, she'd been there for 10 years. 
<laughs> so I think she wanted everything for herself. Yeah. Well, and I'm I'm kind of, I kept me of Moby Dick. I'm sorry. Sorry, Julie, go ahead. Ahab and Moby Dick, I think about vengeance. And wow. he wasn't all bad. So, because he appeared like a really bad, bad person. So. Yeah, yeah. Her, and it, I mean, it's interesting, you go to, because, you know, if we go back to Moby Dick, um, Ahab started, this is really interesting, Why? what you guys are putting together sort of amazes me now. You know, t three years ago when we were talking about Iliad, or, or when we went to Murder the Cathedral, or Faulkner's Sound and the Fury, we didn't have this behind us, and <laughs> now, now we do. When Ahab sets off for vengeance, he wants to get back at a whale, um who took off his leg. What we see and what the beauty, and I, you know from my reading of it, that I think he's really exercising a Protestant demon in America, this justification, the Calvin, the sense of predestination. and um, What we see in that vengeance is um, something darker that, that isn't covered in the... I, I guess another way of putting it, can any human being really enter into a world of spiritual vengeance without going deeper that that you that that opens on that that it can open on something demonic because that's what that's what um, um, Melville shows us in Ahab because Ahab's going to metaphysical he said I want to strike through that mask you know he's dealing with metaphysical realities not just a whale and when we look at Clytemnestra it seems to me it's impossible to just dismiss her actions as bad there's a depth of spiritual evil. She uses the God, she lies, she deceives, and it opens up a kind of power that is frightening. And what's really interesting about it is that it's so inhuman. She and August, and to me, Agassos is a toad. He's a toad or a... Toad. A what? Flunky is what He's a flunky or a shadow. I mean, he's a shadow of a man. He's hiding behind. Clytemnestra is the driving power of that. He... He's an embarrassment. To what, to what. You know, he claims like he's got all this power, and <coughs> and I think he'd shrink if she, you know, went away. But um, it's it's impossible to read this without being aware that once that power opens, and and it takes over in a political realm, the effects of what it's going to do. So this is not just about vengeance, and I and I don't want to enlarge on it. I think what Aeschylus is showing is once you once you make an opening for that, even if you don't see it yourself, it opens up on larger spiritual disorders, wrongs. It, it takes on a greater dimension. And what we're seeing is something inhuman about it, particularly at the end, because when she and Agistos take over, it's not just, now I've done, I mean, Tracy said it, now I've avenge my daughter and I can get on with my life. She wants power, she wants control, and the control she wants is anti-human. It's um, she's she's gonna use people. I Igasos is gonna use people. They're going he says when we break when you bend your wills and we crack you won't you won't be talking this way then. They want to make everybody in that town come into line. Because they have once they're in power they have to make everybody follow their wills. So I guess, or uh, Aeschylus, like um, Melville, I'm so glad for you guys drawing that. God, you guys amaze me. Once, once you do that, and 
a power is given to you, that power won't stop with yourself. They, they can't go on in the world if they don't impose that on other people. So this is not just about bad. This is about this is about something darker and and Aeschylus is, I mean, and, and by the way, it, it's eventually going to lead to a new kind of city to answer it. Because because part of the problem is Argos. It's too noble, it's too proud. It's produced proud women, it's produced proud men. This is what proud men and women do to their children. We're, we're dealing with, um, it's like Moby Dick, and we're dealing with larger, deeper things. So it goes back to Mark, Mark's comment a couple of minutes ago. Anyway, we're, we're I'm sorry. So go ahead, Jolie. Go. When you we're talking about, um, you know, what's actually controlling the, the bad behaviors, um, thinking about, well, I used to wonder that when, you know, I would read in the Old Testament stories of, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, you know, King Darius was going to fry them, and, you know, Daniel in the lion's den under King Nebuchadnezzar. And, God, are you um, good? The, you know, just all, all the, I always wonder what's, and then Herod in the New Testament when Christ was born, um, getting rid of all the firstborn males. And I thought, I, I wonder if just being in power just does something to you, you know, where the enemy gets in no matter what. It's, um, so I, I thought, oh gosh, it's another one of those. It's like a Law and Order episode. Um, and, yeah. and, um, so I just wondered, you know, um, the the comparisons there. And regarding Cassandra, I also wondered um, what who the prophet most ignored in the Old Testament was, where he'd say, "You guys have to listen to me. This is going to happen because of the evil of your natures becoming the evil of the corporate." city you know and it's gonna you know fall and yeah whatever um and no one would listen and i wondered who you know who was the closest comparison to cassandra next week when we start can you have an answer for us i really want to hear by the way i i couldn't i'm just so enjoying you guys i mean you everything is the fact that you could have rattled off those names the way you did as easily as you did <laughs> amazed me there's no way i could have rattled off those names the way you did because they're all difficult but I, I love the comparisons because you're absolutely right on. I mean, if you look at a play like this and then look at the, 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 the powerful figures that you mentioned, you know, all of them. Let's stop. You guys have worn me out. Um, I'm so glad for this. I'm so glad we're doing this. I'm so glad we're doing this. So glad. I'm so glad we're going back. And I'm so glad to think we're going to go forward. You know that. So next week we'll do libation bears will spend only one day on it that's it and by the way let me give you a let me give you a heads up no we're just going to do I'm, i've got one question i mean i'll cover the summary and i'm going to do it you guys read it i've got one fundamental question and it goes to prophecy again what's the importance of cassette or uh, clytemnester's dream for that play why why is that so important remember that we're dealing with the same powers the um apollo is this sort of intellectual light it's it's masculine it's abstract it's otherworldly the furies are dark and of the earth feminine you've got these two polar contrasts we get hints of them in the Agamemnon <clears throat> they've got explicit images in um, libation berries the abstractness of the male at a distant the light the darkness of the female if I can you know the furies 
so long as they're in that form, nothing but harm. The whole question is, can they get, can they be reconciled? Okay. The center of libation bears is Clytemnestra's dream. And we're back in a prophetic world, and it's a woman. I really liked what Jolie said. It, to, to me, one of the amazing things about the uh, Agamemnon is that it seems to me that, that Aeschylus is showing us what, what happens when a woman can go bad, the, the cunning, the de deceptiveness. At the other extreme is Cassandra, and nobody hears her. She's like Philomela with her tongue cut out. Nobody will hear. There's something, and remember, I've, I've asked you this uh, so many times, why is wisdom imaged as feminine? Nobody hears Cassandra. Nobody hears her. Philomela had her tongue cut out. As a matter of fact, I'm going to end on this. Um, if I can. Yeah. This is the poem I sent you, you remember, from Jay McPherson's collection. Um, <laughs> the Boatman, I, I read one of her small poems, uh, um, you know, several weeks ago. It's a woman poet. It's a woman poet. And you know that I, I think in some way I've been making this claim that poetry is feminine. It, it, it's different from masculine. It's different from masculine power or, or power that women step on into because they want power. It's, it's separated from that world because it's, its nature is not power. That's not what wisdom is. This is the opening of her collection called The Boatman, which is <laughs> playing on... Um, she's so modern. The Boatman, she's playing on Noah because Noah had to build a boat when the world was going to hell and nobody would hear. So it's going back to the Noah story. The world is going to hell. Nobody's hearing. Noah's going to... So all of her poems, and none of them are explicitly Christian or, you know, they're just... They're about our contemporary world. But this is the poem that is the epigraph of her collection. Um, it goes, Sir, because we're talking about nightingales, people don't hear birds singing anymore. Remember the birds in the, in the Iliad? The birds were the carriers of wisdom. They had to be interpreted. They were the carriers of wisdom because they were closer to the gods. And people don't pay attention to the birds. That's You guys must think the farther we go along, the, the madder I get. Or <laughs> people don't listen to birds. <laughs> that's going to go viral. So pay <laughs> go attention to the birds. Pay attention to the birds right now. Oh, God. Here's her opening poem. Sir, no man's nightingale, your foolish bird. I sing and thrive by angel, angel finger fed. And when I turn to rest, an angel's word exalts an air of trees about my head, shrouds me in secret where no single thing may envy no man's nightingale her spring. Why does nobody listen to Cassandra? Why does nobody hear the nightingale sing? What's wrong with our world? What's the cost on our children? Let me leave it with that. I'm so glad we've done this. It opened up a dark world. 
I'm glad to be doing this with you guys. Um, we will be praying for you. Please keep us in your prayers, please, Suzanne and me. All of you guys have a, a good week. Read, read the Libation Bears. They're, they're short plays. And read Humanities. <laughs> okay? So we can close this thing. See what Aeschylus offers us finally as an answer. Okay, good to see you guys. I um, Genuinely good to see you guys after Christmas, okay? Have a good week. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Yep. Mm. Mm. I'll do that.